the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 16. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm talking to Nathan Jones from Turner and Townsend. He's a specialist in data security, and I thought this topic is a critical one to cover alongside our previous episodes as we've been talking about creating digital asset information. Now, there's little benefit of creating digital assets if they're too secure, that no one can actually access them easily. But also on the other side, you don't want your facility information accessible by someone that should not have that information at all. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today, Nathan. No problem. Now, for the listeners that aren't aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And and I think that... uh, your journey into this realm is is quite interesting for people that are within the AEC industry. Yeah, sure. So, um, so Nathan Jones, um, I'm an associate director uh, with Turn and Townsend in, in the UK, um, and I head up uh, our internal uh, security team. So, I have a team of specialists who work for me, uh, and we cover cyber, uh, physical, and, and data security. My journey into TNT is, is, is a little bit different. So I'm, I'm ex-military. I was in the British Army for, for 23 years as a, as a communication specialist, basically spending lots of time all over the world in, in lots of different places, collaborating with other countries, other nations, other forces, uh, predominantly in a secret or a top secret environment. I left the military in May 2015 and was basically snapped up by, by Turner and Townsend quite quickly, uh, as conveniently when I left the military, PAS 1192 Part 5, which is the UK standard on BIM security, had just been released. So essentially, I was brought into TNT to look at BIM security, but over the last four years, that has grown um, from just BIM security to a uh, holistic security offering. Because the listeners probably have already listened to my uh, talk with George uh, about two weeks or about a month ago now, and George did a good job in explaining, I guess, the services that they provided in terms of project management. One thing that I think would really be of interest to the listeners would be um, the services that you offer in regards to data security or security, as you kind of mentioned just then, that it's actually becoming um, quite a bit broader, you know, and and hopefully um, if this podcast starts to get exciting, um, maybe I'll need to engage you guys to provide me some um, personal security, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so so interesting question. So security needs to be looked at holistically. So it's pointless having, you know, 12 foot fences with, with, you know, razor wire and CCTV cameras and all the rest of it. Uh, if your cyber security is, is really, really poor and it's pointless having fantastic cyber security with, with lots of different solutions and firewalls and protecting your, your electronic information. If you leave paperwork lying around, uh, the way you, you remove and destroy uh, information is really, really weak. You know, whether that's an internal threat from FM staff, cleaners, whatever, who can quite easily um, come into a building and, and steal information, or whether that's just information that is 
produced into a hard copy left lying around. Um, so it really needs to be uh, an, an holistic uh, kind of point of view. And if you look at any any standard, so take ISO 27001, um, take the new BIM ISOs, which some are currently in development, um, it's not just about uh, electronic security. It is very much around uh, a holistic uh, approach. As part of your introduction and, and to yourself and I guess the reason why you were you know snapped up so quickly by Turner and Townsend, obviously the, that you mentioned about uh, PASS 1192.5 and obviously the purpose of that standard is to sit along the other 1192 British publicly available standards. Now at a high level, now obviously you just kind of covered it in, in some ways in saying how the, the, that British standard's kind of being converted into the ISO standard, but can you describe at a high level what that standard is supposed to cover in terms of the PAS yeah yeah well well at, I guess we could talk about it at a PAS level or we could you know we could jump a jump a step and 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 move straight into where it's heading with the ISO because obviously at the moment it's still a PAS or a, or a British standard and they are currently working on releasing it as an ISO uh, I think at the end of next year or the end of this year yeah, so so I think I think it's probably worth going through going through the whole journey because yeah. I'm I'm reasonably close to it. Um, so when the PAS was was launched, I guess it was around May May 2015, something like that. What it what it what it does is it, it kind of points you to ask some some quite detailed questions. It doesn't tell you how to do anything. It 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 doesn't tell you really to do anything. It just kind of advises you to say actually. If you if you work in this environment, so so from a UK point of view, the PAS is very much focused on our our critical national infrastructure, which of which there are 13, 13 areas. You know, crowded spaces, those sort of organisations or or areas where people can convene, whether that's a, whether that's a nuclear power plant or whether that's a concert hall. Um, and and the PAS is very much around. Okay, so if you are about to build or renovate an asset that falls within one of these areas, you might want to be thinking about this. And it, it points you towards really looking at how you're going to collaborate before you collaborate and who you're going to collaborate with, you know, what supply chain is going to be procured and how you're going to procure it and how do you de-risk um, the, the supply chain having a breach either from a, from a data security or from a cyber security. It, it points you towards having a strategy so the organization understands what is sensitive about the information you're going to be collating through the project or program and how you're going to be treating it. And it kind of spits you out in the end of, of, of with a strategy, uh, a plan of how that strategy is going to be supported uh, across the organization and a document of what sensitive information is going to be collated and how that's going to be going to be treated and at a very very high level that is it yep. in terms of the iso so so interestingly i'm on i'm on the uk uh, panel for uh, the replacement for 1192 part 5 so iso 19655 yep. um uh, and and it's it's now sitting in final uk draft we had our final meeting uh, this week Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes to the international board uh, in Norway next month, of which I will be attending. Um, and ultimately, for very good reasons, they're very, they're very similar. There, there are some, there is 
some stuff that was in the PAS that will not go into the ISO at UK government request. But, but the ISO follows the same kind of journey in terms of understanding what you're going to be working on. So it, so it tells you to go through a triage process, which is massively important. Yep. Um, and then it takes, takes you on a journey of how you're going to be uh, looking after that information. And it hints quite strongly to, to looking at it from a holistic point of view. So going back to what I said, said earlier, it discusses how you're physically going to protect this information, how you're going to protect it from a, from a cyber point of view, and how you're going to protect it from a data security point of view. It doesn't go into, into how that should be done technically uh, for good reason, because every single client is different. Every single client to a staff site is different. So it doesn't tell you how or what to use. It just kind of points you down this journey of informing you that you should really be thinking about this, and this is what we recommend. Yeah, and I guess the problem with the standard also is, is with technology changing as um, quickly as it is, it'd be kind of um, a dangerous thing to do to kind of go into the detail as to how when 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 things are moving so quickly as well. Absolutely, I, mean, I, I work quite closely with with our cyber team and with most of our clients. Um, I get quite heavily involved with with a lot of the cyber protection um, to kind of put that ring fence around the information first. Um, and you know, there's new technology coming out almost on a on a weekly weekly basis, um, and the stuff that can be done now within the cyber world is, is is very very powerful. But it needs to be it needs to be thought about because the clients can be in danger, organisations can be in danger of just throwing money at the problem. And actually, there is there is more often than not some very low hanging fruit that can be dealt with quite cheaply and quite quickly yet have a massive effect on the security of the information you're going to be collaborating with. Well, that's interesting. Now you've got me really interested. It's almost like the reading the cover of a book, what you've just put in front of me. <laughs> but, you know, the standard's been in place now in the UK for, you know, just around the four years, Mark, and you've been part of that process in terms of assisting clients. Now, have you seen um, a lot of clients actually have data off a BIM project actually get to a level yet in that four-year period that's actually going to, that has actually needed this level of um, security or protection or is it just at this point in time being setting this, the security policies in place so that when they actually have that information, they'll be able to act in, a, in, that, in that way? So, so that's a really, really good question because, you know, as, as, as I'm sure you'll be aware, the UK mandated them level two in the, uh, on, on all UK public uh, public projects, um, projects and programs a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2016. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and we and we haven't we haven't we hadn't seen um, a massive increase in the whole BIM security, but in the last 12 months that that has changed. Yeah, and I think I think that's because people's knowledge of BIM and the processes. Uh, has changed. What what we what we were seeing is very much clients coming in at the EIR level, um, and it was very much about telling the suppliers, the so designers, and tier one contractors what they actually wanted, missing out crucial steps like the OIR, mm-hmm. um, which actually is an internal organisational document that quite clearly clarifies and explains what information is going to be collated and, and why. 
Yeah. And this is where the, the kind of project in the asset world were quite blinkered and are now starting to look wider. So an example in the UK would be we have two pieces of legislation that were pulled in um, last year, one about personal data uh, and one about cyber attack on, on certain organizations. Uh, and, and very high level, if there's, if there's a, a breach of personal information and the organization hasn't put in the necessary policies, protocols, and technical solutions to protect that yeah. personal information, then it's it's a it's a seven, minimum of a seventeen million pound fine, or, or maximum of four, <laughs> or, or maximum of four percent global turnover. Now, the four percent global turnover can be quite weighty for, for large organisations. From a cyber point of view, uh, within certain organisations, within certain suppliers of, of public services, if the operations of that service. So take take uh, take an airport for example. If the airport, if certain systems in the airport is hacked by a cyber attack, um, and that airport has not put in its necessary processes, protocols, and technical solutions to prevent that, then it's a seventeen million pound fine. What that is meant as is is projects and programs need to understand exactly what information is being captured and and why. And whether that's just from a sensitive asset information or whether that links into asset information, if, you know, if, for example, the project or the program is procuring properties, which we can do in the UK, we can, we can, as long as it's not a uh, crown estate, we can mandatory buy people's houses as long as they go through, go through parliament. Um, so if we're, if, if it's part of the property of the program, we're going to, we're going to buy and then knock down a hundred houses, for example. Mm-hmm. As part of that, as part of that project or program, we will be collating a significant amount of personal data. Homeowners, who has the mortgage? Is there any special requirements on the house in terms of disabilities, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So, as part of the project, as part of a BIM project, we're now collating personal information. On the other side of the fence, in terms of a cyber point of view, if the project is working on assets that could affect the operational uh, or operations of the asset from a cyber point of view. And if the project, for example, is to replace some runway lighting or some control systems on, on, a, on a rail network or something like that, then the information required to collate as part of the BIM project gets into the wrong hands and provides that organization, that bad person, with enough information to commence or to carry out a cyber attack. Then that the organisation who has the, who owns the asset is then subject to a seventeen million pound fine. So we've seen so probably quite fortuitously we've seen UK legislation from a personal data and from a cyber protection point of view um, actually start to help the BIM security journey. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things there. One is UK legislation helping helping the BIM security journey. And one is actually the clients becoming more aware of the sensitivities of the information that they could be producing. Um, so we are seeing an increase uh, and a demand on our on our teams or on my team's uh, skills. So the interesting approach I guess I could take out of this is has this standard in many ways actually improved the awareness of companies just purely about the way in which they handle data security as a whole, even taking a step back from the whole concept of uh, built assets and actually thinking about 
the data security of their business um, overall? Is it you know could could people take it that way as well? Um, I, I think what it what it what it what it has done because it doesn't tell you what to do and how to yeah. do it, understandably. But what it has done is it's it's raised questions. So I, I meet with a lot of clients who said, "Yeah, we we read through the pads, but it doesn't really tell us anything." It's like, well, it's it's not going to. But very very early on in the pads, it gives you a triage, which is a very very simple flow diagram. And if if you follow that flow diagram, it, it will spit you up into one of four areas. You know, one area being you're not so sensitive, but just have a think about how you're going to share your information. To the other end of the spectrum of you're a really sensitive asset, you're engaging with other really sensitive assets, you need to employ specialist people who can come and help you do X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, so I think what, what a lot of people haven't done previously is, is actually read through the paths and understood it and then gone through the triage process to find out how sensitive they are because a lot of organizations don't actually understand how sensitive the project or program could be. So, for example, if if you're carrying out some roadworks and that roadwork is not a particular uh, trunk road, it's not a major junction, it's not a major artery, et cetera, et cetera, then that's probably not a sensitive project. But if you're part of that roadwork, you're going to be touching one of the main fibers that link the entire UK <laughs> yeah. or one of, the, one of the main power cables, if you're going to be touching touching that, i.e. moving it or whatever, or or even just exposing the information, the fact that it's there, then you've taken a project that's not sensitive to a project that, that's very sensitive. Um, so it's really just educating the clients of saying, well, actually, what you're doing and what you want to achieve in terms of your project is not sensitive, but the information of what you're going to be exposing is very sensitive. There was, there was quite... Um, quite a famous drawing now because it's, it's it's open source of a major major uh, railhead in London where frankly it was it was over modeled um, and this was down to down to supply chains and down to designers just just showing off trying to show how good they were in terms of creating quite detailed 3d designs but but what it also exposed is some stuff um, as part of that railhead and as part of the London underground. But it exposed some some information and some quite detailed models of tunnels and, and and other bits and pieces that the UK government really did not want to be exposed. So what the designer was doing was working on a on a on a new junction on a new platform in, in, a, in a in a railway station. Mm. Not too sensitive that there are some there are some isms associated associated with that, but not you know not that sensitive. But by virtue of them over-modeling the project, doing a little bit of showing off and putting all of that onto open source, they then compromise some really sensitive information and some sensitive assets that frankly had nothing to do with with what they were achieving. So the PAS kind of get the the client and the asset owner who who was ultimately responsible for this to start thinking about not only their assets, but also any of the assets that may be touched either physically or electronically, and that could just be about a data sharing piece, whether that's geo information, whether that's structural information, whether that's survey information. Um, that information may expose sensitive data. So the PAS definitely starts to point you down asking these questions. What hasn't been the case is people haven't 
read the Taz uh, either at all uh, or, or in any real detail to furnish them with the questions that they then can go out to organizations who, who deal with BIM security and kind of say, we think we've got a problem. What do you think? Can you come in and have a look? So what that really kind of says to me is that uh, currently uh, with the ISO 19650 series um, in part one and two being currently released and in other uh, countries outside of the UK, there really isn't a standard that's in place to align with this at this point in time. It uh, clearly through uh, the commentary that you've just kind of worked through is um, there's a fair level of importance um, to this um, new ISO standard that will come out um, in the next uh, 12 to 18 months and that clients should really take this standard into consideration if they are considering actually implementing processes under ISO 19650 uh, part one and two. Absolutely. You know, I would I would strongly recommend no matter what asset any client is, is going to be carrying out a, a BIM project on, is, is read the full suite of documents because they complement each other. You know, part five will, will point to part two and part three. You know, it will also it will also point point to other standards in terms of um, quality control, in terms of ISO twenty seven thousand one, which is an information security management system. So it really informs the asset owner at the beginning, uh, and that's the, that's the key thing. At the beginning of the project or the program, what they should think of, should think about doing, and quite importantly for me, what what we very very often see is clients calling us in saying we've read through the paths, we we think we need to have a chat, and there'll be quite there'll be a detailed design stage, or in, in, in a lot of cases they've actually started to build the asset, and it's kind of like what you know. So what do you want me to achieve now? You, you've already secured your supply chain. You already procured and set up your common data environment and the, and the systems and software that will run your BIM project. You're already collaborating with with lots of different organisations and lots of different suppliers. You know what do you want me to achieve? And it's actually very difficult to to kind of bring in the whole BIM security piece. Later on, it it really needs to be thought about at the beginning to get the, the maximum effect with it and, and and that's where a lot of organizations go wrong they kind of they shoot down the the, the one two three area without considering five and five really does underpin and support what they want to achieve in terms of a true security minded approach to collaboration this might be a slightly pointed question or it might not be i don't know but are there actually many people that are actually truly capable of providing advice under the standard because you know, if a client came and came and had a chat to me, there's no way in the world I think I'd be able to ever service them. It's just interesting to know whether or not there are enough people out there that have that expertise, like yourself. Because you know, not many people uh, have uh, 23 years' experience in dealing with um, uh, top secret um, international uh, correspondence. But you know what I mean? It's it's interest. It's interesting in terms of are there many people technically capable to understand? Um, I guess the IT component of it, but also then on the on the other side of it, understand, you know, the difference between a critical asset and a non-critical asset. You know, like for example, a fibre optic cable or, or the like. Yeah, so so that's a that's a that's a really good question. Um, so I think so, so talking from a UK point of view, which is probably easier for for, for me at the moment. Yep. So, so the UK is is quite mature 
in, in terms of its BIM journey. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's mandatory on, on public public spending, so public projects and programs. Um, we've got quite a mature, or a very mature, uh, organization that looks at our crystal national infrastructure. But in terms of BIM security, you're really looking at some quite unique skill sets. And mm. um, what, what isn't required uh, is a deep, in-depth knowledge of construction. Um, and I think that's that's kind of justified and, and highlighted by by my background. What is required is is an understanding of how data uh, flows around systems, um, how that can be protected from a physical point of view, and how that can be protected from a cyber point of view. My team are all are all ex-military for for good reasons. Um, they've all worked in very sensitive backgrounds for, for good reasons, and they all have uh, skills, whether that be a cyber, physical, or, or data kind of background, that actually enhance and pull together um, a, a holistic service offering. In terms of other people, so there are other organisations who who do this. We're we're quite unique in the terms of that we use ex-military people, and I think there's a justified reason for that. That's not to say I wouldn't recruit non-ex-military. Um, it's just because they tick all the boxes for me in terms of security clearance uh, and, and skills and, and training. Um, so there are other, other organizations in the UK who, who do do this, um, but we seem to be quite lucky in terms of that we're working on, on some of the biggest programs within the UK. Yeah, I'm guessing. Um, I'm guessing. I'm guessing, though, that um, the majority of these kind of experts would probably kind of be the the type of people that uh, provide data security for banks. Like that is that the kind of commonality? Uh, it, it it is. But having good security when you're open enough and allowing people in to see that information and sharing that information quite openly is it, quite difficult. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I don't recruit security people per se. I recruit people who have worked within sensitive organizations and have had to share information with other organizations because that that is a subtle and a slightly different skill set. It's definitely a different mindset because you're constantly asking the question before I click this mouse button, before I open this meeting, before I open this call, before I share this information, you're constantly asking the question, you know, is there anything else I need to do? Do I need to ask any questions? Are there any checks and balances that should be in place before I share this document? And, and it's just a mindset that is ingrained in you because of because of the background that these people have been involved in. So it's not it's not just about employing people who understand data security or cyber security, et cetera, et cetera. It's about employing people and utilizing people who who can do that, but also understand the nuances of being able to uh, share and collaborate as well. So it's it's a kind of a it's a very subtle uh, but important difference securing things, but then opening up the security barriers. Yeah, so I guess that kind of takes one of this possibly maybe easy question or challenging question, and and for most of the people that would be listening today as asset owners, they'd have uh, probably in their possession now they'd have a you know a large storeroom they'll have um, 
heaps and heaps of their um, paper records um, or records on, of discs, you know, on, on DVDs or CDs of some sort. And, you know, people need physical access uh, to this single point, which is normally just a single point, or if they have multiple assets, they might have a storeroom in each one of these assets. Um, and all that's secured by is a, a tip, by a key. And, you know, most of the time um, people wouldn't actually frequent this resource um, and it's and they're not frequenting the resource because of the big problems of the problem of having um, key, but it's probably more to do with the fact that it's, the information is probably too hard to find. So the reason why people are going to a digital solution is to try and make the information easier to find and make it a bit more accessible. And in that instance, when it's put on that digital environment, if it's not accessible or easy to get their hands on, uh, people won't bother. Taking into consideration, you know, your whole point here and I guess the reason why we're having the conversation today, how can you make data secure so it can't be obtained by unwanted people but then provide, make it accessible for those that may need it? And, I, and it could be a question, it could be an answer that might be a dictionary or, you know, a very long-winded answer, but it could be a short one as well. We, as in, in, in Turner Townsend, um, do a lot of, of digital transformation projects mm-hmm. uh, globally. I was involved in, in one in, in South America last year. Um, uh, so taking that that traditional, you know, storage room full of lots of documents that no one really knows what's in there and probably doesn't read anyway, uh, and bringing that into to the digital world and making it much more accessible. People get really uncomfortable, nervous, scared, twitchy, whatever you want to, whatever you want to, you know, explain it has in, in terms of putting stuff in, in IT systems, particularly when start, people start talking about the cloud. But actually, the technology has progressed so much more quickly than lots of other areas of construction in terms of having information accessible and secure or unsecured is actually quite straightforward and, and, and quite simple. I think with all of this, nothing is 100%. If any, any organization thinks that their, their information is 100% secure, 365 days a year, they've got it all wrong. You know, the most secure organizations in the world will always be challenging themselves and always bringing in new technology and always looking for the weak link. Um, so by an organization securing an IT system, putting some good cyber health and some, some good cyber systems around it, putting all this information on and then assuming that it's 100% secure um, is actually quite quite naive. There's, you know, there's a reason why all of the large IT companies, you know, Microsoft, Apple, whoever, are always releasing firmware and software updates because most of the time that will, in, that will involve getting rid of uh, security weaknesses. I think what, what's important is to understand from the beginning what the asset owner needs to access, who needs to access it, when they need to access it, and where they need to access it from. So if there was, you know, for example, a, a person or individual who, who is working on a project you know, quite, quite legitimately, um, but they don't have the necessary security clearance or background checks or, or whatever in place for them to see sensitive documents, then as long as the system is set up correctly and the documents are named correctly and the metadata is there, then that person will be able to open that document. Another example is we employ systems that sit on the network and we can see exactly who is accessing what, via what systems, uh, what files they're sending, 
and we can set up different flags and notifications. So if an organization, for example, one of our suppliers on a project is using Dropbox or Google Drive and not using the, the common data environment, we, we can see that. And we can then go to the supplier and say, you're using Google Drive or you're using Dropbox or whatever file sharing software. Um, that's not our approved um, common data environment. It hasn't gone through our governance, our checks and balances, our pen testing or, or whatever. Uh, we would like to stop using it. And we can still then monitor if they carry on to use it. And then that might be a case of, okay, you're using Google Drive. Why? What does Google Drive do for you that our common data environment doesn't? Yeah. Or we could just block it. We could just block it. And that comes down to you know what's written in the contract, what's written in the T's and C's, et cetera, et cetera. So you can start to see there is a, a holistic point of view that needs to be taken about BIM security. What, what do you want your suppliers uh, and how do you want your suppliers to collaborate and how do you not want them to collaborate? Probably more importantly on the not side, that needs to be made quite clear in the invitation to tender in the pre-qualification questionnaire, in the request for proposal, in supplier interviews, in contracts, in terms and conditions, in non-disclosure agreements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if the supplier or the organization you're, you're working with does then start sending data where it shouldn't be sent, that might be to a home Google Mail or a Hotmail account mm. or to an organization that's not supposed to, and we can see that we've got some contractual agreements, some terms and conditions, and an NDA in place that quite specifically cover that. And then it clearly it's up to the asset owner of, of, of what that journey is going to be in terms of whether there's a fine, whether they're removed from the project or, or, or whatever. Um, so to go back to your original question, if organizations are still using paper copies in filing cabinets in strong rooms, then they're probably about 20 years behind. No design team um, designs in 2D anymore, and they haven't done for quite some time. And I think that's quite uh, an interesting point because what you will see and what we see quite a lot is designers saying, oh, if you're going to use BIM, that's going to increase the cost by 10%. <laughs> and straight away, uh, you know, straight away, our team would go back and say, why? Because you're using the tools anyway. Yes. Um, BIM is is a, is a process about you know fundamentally the good use of data and having the data associated with with you know in the right place at the right time for the right people to see. It's not about you know spending a fortune on on Autodesk licensing or, or whatever because that will already be in place. The designers will already, will already have that. So everyone's designing in three D anyway. Um, I still find it amazing that in some contracts the deliverable is a two D plan. Uh, we still see that, you know, even in the UK t today. So everyone's designing using IT systems. So why can't the information be be captured and retained on IT systems? And as long as that is thought through at the beginning of the project before you start sharing and collaborating, actually, it can be a very secure, very robust way of doing things, and it adds the benefit of putting the power back into the client's hands of understanding exactly what is going on, where, with who, and why. And you won't get that in a filing cabinet with 2D drawings. Yeah, I know. It's, it, you won't know when someone goes into that filing cabinet. <clears throat> but I guess there's a couple of more questions I've got to close this discussion out. And I guess 
Is there any difference between having your asset or common data environment or your asset management, if you're looking at the end of the project when it's actually in in operations, is there any challenges or differences between having a cloud-based environment where it's all located on a on another external server to your organisation versus having it connected uh, locally? No, and, and it's, it's interesting. Um, we're starting to see a bit of a shift from on-prem solutions to cloud solutions, mm-hmm. even within the UK government. And the UK government does use cloud, you know, up to a fairly sensitive level. Yep. What what needs to happen is is you know there's there's pros and cons on on both sides, um, but I've you know where where our clients have used suppliers that use on-prem solution because the client doesn't want to use cloud for whatever reason. So my team for for on-prem solutions would um, we would go to the architect's office, the engineering design team's office, the M and E office, or whatever that may be. And we would say, you know, we, we would carry out a, a physical security assessment, but show me your server room, show, show, me, show me your rack, show me where this on-prem solution is hosted. And we then walk backwards. So we're looking at, we call it within the security world, kind of the onion layer effect. You know, how many layers of the onion are protecting the core? And the more layers there are, basically, the, the secure the core is. Yes. And if you think of the core as, as the on-prem solution, what layers of security go around that. And more often than not, the layers of security that surround that on-prem solution are very, very weak. Um, Whether that's poor CCTV, poor access control, poor key management, the server room is shared with the photocopier and the cleaner, the hub, the the cabinets aren't aren't locked. There's no real patch management. There's no cable management, et cetera, et cetera. When you go to a cloud environment, as long as you've done your homework, it's completely the other end of the scale. So you look at, take Microsoft Azure or Amazon Web Services or whatever, they are immensely secure, immensely robust data centers with lots of backup power, backup connectivity, lots of physical security, lots of cyber security, lots of redundancy. So if you put those two options to a client and say, that's what you're currently doing and those are the risks, this is what you could be doing. And there's very few risks. Nothing's 100%. Most clients will go, actually, we want to move to the cloud. The thing to understand with the cloud is what that actually means. So, you know, when it when people say it's in the cloud, it's in a data center, it's in a server, it's on some equipment somewhere. It exists in a physical or virtual world somewhere. And it's really, really important to understand where that somewhere is. So, for example, for a lot of our clients, they will insist that the data centers need to be within the UK mm-hmm. or maybe within the EU. There's quite often, um, or there should be, a backup data center. How, how does that connect? And if the primary data center goes down, how quickly can the secondary data center bring up the solution uh, that the client is, is paying for? And quite often, um, that's not immediate. It can be date. Um, so understanding the, the whole cloud piece, what that is, where that is, how it's accessed, and when you click your button on your mouse, what does that actually mean is really important. So from a UK CNI point of view, from a critical national infrastructure point of view, um, for any CNI project that the asset owner is encouraged to go to the data center and do a full survey. So my team does that quite a lot. So we'll go to data centers 
uh, you know, we'll set up a, a proper visit and we'll be escorted around the data center and the data hall. We will go to the racks where our solutions will be hosted and then doing using the kind of onion layer effect, work our way out to look at how the cleaners get in, what CCTV is looking over the racks, what extra security can we put on those racks? Is it a shared solution? So actually a lot of software providers will have a particular solution on a virtual machine. So your your environment is shared on a server with two, three, four other different asset owners. Does the client want that? You know, what does that actually mean from a technical point of view and from a risk point of view and from a cost point of view? So there's there's lots of different questions about do I go prem, on-prem, do I go cloud? What I will say is, is a lot of the really interesting and powerful cyber tools probably work better in a cloud environment than they do on-prem because you really, you can put it right at the active directory level, right at the very, very top, uh, and you can see everything that's flowing in and flowing out. Most people use the internet now, so by having it in the cloud, it's quite easy to set up some quite interesting tools to inform the client of exactly what's going on. When it's on-prem, yes, it could be more easier to secure, although that is rarely the case. It's very, very often not that secure, but then you're quite limited to what you want to do in terms of understanding when someone clicks send, what does that actually mean? Yeah, and I guess that follows to my last question. Here in Australia, um, our government agencies, whenever we have projects where any work is going to be undertaken on them and there's going to be, um, you know, data stored or transferred. It's all about data sovereignty and having that data actually located within Australia and there's no opportunities that that data is going to be stored off offshore because obviously then there's risk from other countries, I guess, potentially accessing that information that they don't want to have access it where a government possibly could just, you know, go and raid one of these data centres. Is that something that can happen? Yes. Data sovereignty is uh, is a concern. I would say a concern. It's it's something that needs to be considered. Um, whether that's from uh, you know a large tier one contractor hosting lots of information for the asset owner for the client overseas, and then that tier one contractor going going bump going bankrupt, trying to get that data back from the data center will be immensely difficult unless. The T's and C's, the SLAs, the contracts, et cetera, et cetera, are very cleverly and quite clearly drawn up, which, which is very rarely the case. We do see concerns from not only a contractor going, going bankrupt um, and the client uh, getting that information back, uh, but also from, let's say, other, other governments having the ability to, to delve into that information and, and find out what the asset owner, what the client is actually doing. Um, there are pros and cons of keeping stuff nationally uh, and moving overseas. Um, for example, in the UK, generally hosting stuff overseas is about 30% cheaper. Yeah. Um, so if it's not a risk to the client um, or if the client's prepared to take that risk because it might not be a particularly sensitive asset or whatever, or they're using a supplier that they've used for years, um, you know, they're very well, uh, financially set, then actually go and put it somewhere else because you're saving yourself 30%. As long as some basics like encryption or that kind of good stuff uh, is put in place. 
it's the final question. It's the one question I ask everyone of my guests. But the thing is, I'm actually most interested with your answer on this one compared to my other guests and uh, because of your background and, and where you've come from. But Nathan, what does BIM mean to you? Yeah, so, so that's a good question. So because my background isn't um, construction or uh, focused, design focused or whatever, to me, BIM fundamentally is about the sharing of information. And I, I get really um, frustrated when organizations and suppliers trying to try to make it more complex than what it actually is. It's about agreeing a set of standards, a set of protocols, um, so that the asset owner will get the absolute most out of the entire construction process, the design, the build, the operations, and the decommissioning of that, of that asset. You know, data is everything now. Um, it's immensely powerful, and if it's used correctly, um, can make buildings much more efficient, um, whether that's from an environmental impact or whether that's from a cost impact. Uh, it informs the client's of how the building uh, is going to work and how it's actually going to live and breathe. And then any um, security or any environmental concerns that need to be taken into consideration when the building is, is decommissioned. BIM to me is, is, if I was to sum it up in one word, it's, it's about collaboration. But it's understanding how BIM can support a number of other ideas, agendas, um, schemes, if you like, around smart buildings, smart cities, smart communities. Um, and I think there are absolutely some synergies between what BIM can do, what it will be able to do in the future, and how it can enhance uh, our our built environment. Now, Nathan, I think that this uh, session has been probably one of the most interesting ones for me because it's one of the things or one of the areas that I actually believe that would probably be forgotten by many people that were considering this as part of their BIM journey and, and and actually kind of understanding that there is a high level of importance to data security. But on the flip side, I think it might actually possibly even open up the questions for clients to actually start to consider a high level of interest in the in the data security they have and actually operating their business. So it's actually kind of possibly a twofold benefit. But uh, mate, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, no, not at all. I think, you know, my, my closing comment would be, and I think and I, I hear it and see it with every client, is when you start to talk about BIM security, they will say, no, we've got our own security team. We've got our own IT security team. We've got our own physical security team. We don't need to worry about BIM security. And then when I explain to them what BIM security actually is, uh, and, and, and we've, we've, we've actually done a couple of videos using Salibri software, which we've actually... Uh, gone out and found within the BIM model security risks on designs that were literally just about to be signed off um, and be built, um, then you start to get the client's attention. So, so the, the biggest blocker we have from a BIM security point of view is the, is the client or the asset owner assumes that its existing security team uh, are already doing it. That is never the case. And we, we always work alongside the existing security teams, whether that be cyber, physical, or data, um, but bring in the BIM capability, which is subtly different, which I've hopefully spoke about um, during during this podcast, to then support the existing security team throughout their BIM journey. Thanks once again, Nathan, for your time. For more information on Nathan and the topic we discussed today, please head to our website for further reading. 
I look forward to sharing our next podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. Digital transition.